0: The deep sea is not the barren lifeless desert that we once imagined.
1: The variety of life that inhabits the abyss continues to surprise us. I mean, keep in mind that it's been only a few years ago that we discovered the Yeti crab, this crab that's covered in this sort of long hairs and just a fundamentally uniquely different type of crab. You know, that's a relatively recent worm. Osodex boning worms were only discovered, you know, about a decade ago.
0: But the diversity of the deep sea, which scientists say may be as rich as a rainforest, is threatened by companies who want to strip mine the
1: ocean floor. We may lose species, and remarkable species, species that really challenge our concepts of what life can do on Earth. We may lose them before we have a chance to even discover them.
0: Are we ready to eradicate an alien landscape that we haven't yet adequately explored? I'm Seth Shostak.
2: I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, it is a race to the bottom of the sea to catalog life's diversity, explore miles of unmapped caverns, and investigate potential new sources of antibiotics from bacteria, all before dredging vehicles start to scoop up the sea bottom. But the race also presents an opportunity.
1: We as humans have not done a great job of conserving the world around us. And the deep seas are sort of our last chance to get this right, just once.
2: In this episode, we go into the deep.
0: So what do we mean by the deep sea? Well, even if you're a recreational diver, it's unlikely that you've plunged anywhere close to this scientific boundary of deep sea. Let's go there now.
2: To reach the deepest waters of the ocean and the seabed underneath, you must descend thousands of meters. Scientists break these depths into zones that change the farther you go down. The sunlight zone is where we begin.
1: And that's the zone in which the oceans receive most of their light. That's where the plankton, uh, both the phyto and zooplankton both grow. That's where a lot of, most of ocean life lives. But continue your descent beyond the sunlight zone.
0: Oxygen in the water decreases, darkness and pressure increase as you pass into what scientists consider the deep sea at 200 meters. You are now entering the appropriately named Twilight Zone.
1: I think the biggest key for scientists is where we think of where the deep sea begins is about 200 meters. And that's important for a couple of different reasons. One is 200 meters on average is where the last bits of light sort of drop off and you go to total darkness. And you would start to see more what we think of as deep sea animals, greater occurrence of bioluminescence. A lot of the strange creatures that we think of like anglerfish and things like that is typically what we see in that zone. The other important thing is, is that 200 meter depth line also corresponds where the continental shelf ends and the continental slope begins. So where there's this abrupt break in the seafloor. And then after that, it the seafloor drastically sort of begins to increase in depth. So there's this really like sharp drop off after
2: that. The twilight zone extends down a thousand meters and then it gives way to the bathyol or midnight zone here, the average temperature is a chilly 39 degrees Fahrenheit, but that suits your fellow swimmers, anglerfish, snipe eels, and vampire squid just fine.
0: Down, down you
1: go, passing the 4,000 meter mark, two and a half miles. And then eventually you get out to the Abyssal Plains, which are some of the deepest parts of the ocean, and they're exactly what we think about. they are these flat regions of the deep sea floor. And then, of course, in certain areas, we get what we're called trenches, which are where the abyssal plain is actually inundated with a trench. And the depths there can, you know, get up to, like in the Marianas Trench, over 10,000 meters. At the southern end of the Marianas
0: Trench in the western Pacific, east of the Philippines, lies the deepest part of the ocean, the Challenger Deep. It's 11,000 meters down.
2: The deep region here is named after the Greek god of the underworld, Hades. Welcome to the Hadel Zone.
0: Okay, while it seems barely believable, there are creatures inhabiting these dark depths, thriving under pressures a thousand times that at sea level. My first thought though is food. Where can a deep sea creature get a decent meal? It's one of the big
1: questions about the deep sea. I'm Dr. Craig McLean, I'm the Executive Director of the Louisiana University's Marine Consortium, and I'm a deep sea biologist, as well as an evolutionary biologist and an ecologist. The work that my research lab does is sort of twofold. One is we want to understand how the oceans and land are connected in the global carbon cycle. And one of the big questions we're tackling now is how carbon from land makes it into the deep ocean. We're also interested in once that carbon makes it into the deep ocean, how does that promote biodiversity in the deep ocean? And so we know that despite the lack of food in the deep sea, that is actually one of the richest, most biodiverse habitats on Earth. There are a few places like hydrothermal vents and methane seeps that have sort of the primary production of food and carbon. But by and large, most of the deep sea is relying upon food that is produced in the waters overhead or that comes in from land. Living things
0: get their energy by either making carbon-based molecules or taking them apart. Carbon molecules are the essence of most food. So to understand how carbon cycles through the oceans, Dr. McLean ran an unusual experiment. He deposited a big supply of it a little above the abyssal plain in the form of three reptiles whose bodies
1: were donated to science. So they are three alligators that we deployed two kilometers in depth in the deep Gulf of Mexico.
2: Their names evoke another underworld, Stumpy, Frankie Three Toes, and Lucky.
1: Stumpy was missing a whole claw, one of his right-side claw. Frankie Three Toes had three toes as opposed to four on one of his legs. And uh, Lucky was the one that didn't seem to have any abnormalities and so was named Lucky. And so uh, those are the, how we sort of begin to distinguish between them and the three different fates that befell them.
0: And fell is the operating word. In the deep ocean, a large food fall is a big source of carbon-based nutrition. It might be dead whales, in which case it's a whale fall. Or large pieces of algae in an algae fall. I mean, you get the idea. Dr. McLean's team wanted to know who would show up for an alligator fall in three spots in the Gulf of Mexico, 2,000 meters down. Well, here's what he learned, beginning with how he got Stumpy, Frankie Three Toes, and Lucky to sink and sleep with the fishes.
1: We both have weights on them. Each of them had 45-pound weights on them. But we take them down to what's called a benthic elevator, which is essentially a... Cage uh, with lids that's lowered down on a wire to the deep sea floor, and then on the deep sea floor, we use a robot to take and remove things from that cage in this case, the three alligators and their weights, and then they're placed on the floor for the experiment. I think the important thing is that, that it's obviously very cold at those depths, so we're nearing you know, we're just above freezing at this time, um, complete lack of light, and little to no actual food at this depth, right? So the lack of light prevents photosynthesis and the sort of primary production of carbon through plants and algae and phytoplankton. And so the deep sea is essentially relying upon food that's produced elsewhere and sinks into the deep ocean.
2: So could we say that the, the real question you had by dropping these alligators to the, to the seafloor was you wanted to see what would happen next? You wanted to see who would show up to eat them?
1: Absolutely. It's a question of once an alligator carcass makes it to the deep sea floor naturally, what are the animals that utilize that alligator for food? How quickly does it make it into the deep sea food web? And then where does that carbon go afterwards? And so it's essentially a a game of deep sea mystery.
2: But. But you studied the deep sea. Um, You couldn't have been too surprised what would show up. Didn't you know what creatures were down there that would want to feast on an alligator? In other words, what did you think would happen? Or did you pretty much know what would happen?
1: My research group believed that it would take longer for the alligator's internal flesh, so to speak, to be consumed. Um, You know, the alligator hide is quite thick. It's a formidable barrier. And we're actually quite surprised by how quickly the deep-sea animals were actually able to sort of tear into the hide, so to speak.
2: Okay, well, that gets us to a hint as to what happened. Well, Craig, what happened to the alligators when you went to check on them? Because they each met a different fate, didn't they?
1: They did. And so in the first case, just after less than 24 hours, um, we were able to witness these sort of giant isopods, which are sort of two foot long roly polies that occur in the deep sea, dozens of them sort of ripping into this alligator carcass. Um, And at one point they'd actually created a hole into the carcass and were eating the alligator from inside out. And so we were quite startled by how quickly they responded, how many of them there were. The second one uh, we visited several weeks afterwards. And what we found was that all that was left of the alligator was the bones. Bones that were covered in this bone eating worm called osodex. Um They sort of drill into the bones to extract the lipids. They're red in color and they actually, when you see them, they look like a bit of red shag carpeting that's covering all of these alligator bones.
2: I think they're called zombie um, worms.
1: They are called zombie worms. Yeah, very much so. Um, I'm not sure why, to be honest with you, since zombie worms are known for eating brains. um, And these are clearly (laughs) bone eating worms. But um, yeah. (laughs) And we were kind of surprised at how, again, how quickly this all had happened. You know, this was around the 40 to 50 day mark.
2: So one alligator is devoured by the the giant isopod, another by the bone eating worm. Um, Wasn't there a, a strange thing that happened to the third alligator?
1: That's right. And so the third alligator, we actually dropped back down on the site with a remote operated vehicle about eight days later. And we came up to the spot where we had put the alligator, and lo and behold, there was no alligator there. So, the, of course, the first question that runs through your mind is are we in the right spot? But we had left a marker, an underwater marker out there where we had deployed the alligator, and the marker was still there. So we knew we were in the right spot. And of course, I'll upon closer inspection, we could even see the divot in the mud where we had left the alligator. And about 21 feet away, we saw the 45 pound weight that the alligator was attached to um, and nothing else outside of a piece of plastic rope that we'd used to secure the alligator to that weight. And so we believe that something was large enough to actually consume the alligator hole, sever the line You know, and this is a half inch polypropylene line, so it's not easy to cut through and then drag a 45 pound weight 20 feet. And so, you know, there's only two or three different things that we could think of that actually would be able to do that. And we believe that was probably a large shark, either a large six gill shark, a large Greenland shark.
2: We should say that I believe uh, this was the fate of Lucky. Lucky was the one that uh, very
1: unlucky <laughs>
2: <laughs> was the one whose rope was severed and then and then dragged off. That's right. And-
1: I mean, as someone you know, so my background is in mollusk. I think I always secretly hope that everything will be can be attributed to a giant squid, but um, <laughs> we didn't think that that was likely a possibility.
2: <laughs> were you surprised that a shark would be down at if it were a shark? A shark would be down at those depths.
1: Well, we do know that sharks get to that depth in the Gulf of Mexico, but they're not frequent. And so we were kind of surprised to see that one, there was a shark in the vicinity that detected the alligator, but one that would just take the whole thing whole and leave no trace of it behind whatsoever. I think we were sort of found it interesting that each of these sort of alligators met three different fates. So there's a diversity of ways in which the food, this carbon from the alligator can enter into the deep sea food chain, you know, through much different pathways. And just how quickly deep sea animals can respond to that? We think of the deep sea oceans because the temperature slows down biological processes, as essentially being a slow environment. But in actuality, you know, this quick response of the deep sea biological community to this input of carbon sort of suggests that that's not really the case.
2: Well, well, finally, Craig, this is this such an unusual experiment? And what's the big picture takeaway of what it revealed to you about what we don't know about the deep ocean and what questions remain for you?
1: So one is, you know, it's easy to think of the deep sea as something very remote and not connected to us personally in our actions um, as humans or connected to what goes on on land. And I think as we continue to explore these relationships, what we find is a very tight coupling of the deep sea to what occurs on land, whether it be you know, storm events that push wood out to sea or the conservation of alligators in this case. And of course the questions remain is how deep do those connections go? How much connection is there and how tightly coupled is the sort of global carbon cycle and the roles that the oceans and land play together?
2: Craig McLean, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, I appreciate it. Greg McLean
0: describing the results of his Alligator Fall experiment. Dr. McLean is a deep-sea and evolutionary biologist, and an ecologist and executive director of the Louisiana University's Marine Consortium. Mining companies are ready with their dredging vehicles to scrape the sea floor how they stand a profit and what they put in peril next.
2: Plus, what it was like to dive into the undersea sinkhole called the Green Banana and how it got its name, of course.
0: It's Into the Deep on Big Picture Science. Most of the planet is deep ocean, yet we don't know much about it. We've only begun to discover the treasures of the deep sea, as we heard.
2: But the definition of treasure depends on whom you talk to. For some fossil fuel companies, it is the oil and gas extracted from ever deeper waters. For some mining companies, the treasure includes manganese, nickel, copper, silver, and even gold, all present in deep sea rocks called polymetallic nodules. While underwater mining regulations have not been firmly established, these companies have their dredging vehicles ready, waiting for an okay to start scraping up the nodules.
0: Collectively, more than a dozen international companies are poised to begin history's biggest mining operation. And as one journalist put it, the consequences are unimaginable. But... One person who is imagining those consequences is a senior scientist at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, Stephen Haddock, who, along with oceanographer Anela Choi, outlined them in a recent op-ed for the New York Times.
3: There's a couple things that are really acutely at risk. One is just the, the chance and the real possibility of losing permanently organisms that we haven't even discovered yet. You know, there's a a great deal that we don't know about the deep sea and especially about the biology of the deep ocean. It also could potentially affect the entire health of the ocean. These these mining operations are supposed to run for up to 30 years. These leases are for 20 or 30 years. They're releasing two to three million cubic feet of sediment each day. So if you imagine, you know, multiply that each day by 30 years and you've just been Pumping this um, silt into the water column permanently, and it's not going to be constrained to that little box. It's going to reach, it's going to circulate all the way around the oceans. So
0: why are these mining machines so destructive? What is it that they do? I mean, physically, what are they
3: doing? I would encourage people to look up some pictures of some of these mining machines that have have been built. They look like a rototiller strapped to the front of a bulldozer, but imagine that this this spinning wheel, like almost like a threshing machine, is essentially Twice as tall as a person. So when people stand next to them, they, they just look like miniature models. And so these can go along the seafloor and just scrape this swath of the surface sediments into their hoppers and then pump that material up to the surface. They run it through like a blender on the ship, the processing ship. So it turns into not even a puree. I mean, it's finer than a puree. And so that releases all the toxic chemicals that are potentially in there and turns what would be a mud clod into silty, muddy water.
0: The effluent doesn't just you know, settle back down onto the seafloor?
3: It doesn't actually sink. It's, it's advected rapidly, and it's essentially neutrally buoyant in the water column at whatever depth it's released.
0: Tell me, what's the effect on the wildlife? I mean, obviously on the seafloor, but also in the water above it, because... You know, okay, so this machine takes away the nodules, and you know I'm some sort of weird fish because all the life down there looks alien to me. I have to say, uh, but you know I just go away for a while, and I come back, uh, you know, a day later, and uh, the machine is gone, and I'm still uh, happy, right? <laughs> or am I not happy? <laughs> well,
3: probably not too happy. The the boundaries in a lot of ecosystem, the boundaries are really important areas where a lot of things happen, and on the seafloor, it's the same way. That zone just above the seafloor and into the top um, bit of that sediment is where so many of the interactions happen. That's where if something falls to the seafloor, everything comes to scavenge it. A lot of things are also burrowed into the sediment and relying on these things falling down from the bottom. So that whole ecosystem is non-existent after it. It's not like it has a chance to recover. There's just nothing there to recover.
0: So Steve, uh, what happens to the filter feeders down there that are making a living by just swimming through the water and in, ingesting what comes
3: their way? A lot of the discussion of the impacts of mining have been framed around how it's going to affect that the seafloor itself. And what was the real eye-opener for me was starting to think about how it's going to affect the water column. So one, one common strategy in the deep sea is to deploy a mucus net. And if you look at electron micrographs of these things, they're amazing. Like They look like gauze, but on a microscopic scale. And those are filtering particles out of the water column. And there, there's a bunch of organisms that do this. There's there's polychaete worms, which are more or less relatives of earthworms on land. There's a whole bunch of organisms called uh, larvations. They look like little tadpoles, and they inflate a mucus house around them and then pump water through that. And if some percentage of that is this non-nutritive clay, you know, mud, they're gonna suddenly be starving even though they think they're eating, they're, they're gonna be consuming things that are not nutritious and potentially toxic.
0: And, and they affect the life that's considerably above them? I mean, you know, if I'm in the sunlight zone of the ocean, do I sense what's gone on below me?
3: Yeah, so one of the ways that this deep ocean is connected to the shallow ocean is through vertical migration. That twilight zone is essentially a highway where on a daily basis, organisms will migrate all the way nearly to the surface at night and then go back down as a refuge during the day. So they're, they're trafficking both material from the surface down into the deep sea and their biomass from the deep sea comes up to the surface and could potentially feed organisms that live there. So it, it is connected, even though um, the deep sea part of it seems very distant.
0: And, and, Steve, then there are the hydrothermal vents, maybe the site of the first life on Earth, for that matter. But, you know, there are these things down there, the big chimneys, if you will, with stuff coming out the top. What's the consequence of destroying these things?
3: Well, there's, so there's three types of mining that are usually discussed. The third type are these hydrothermal vents, which are more like a volcano erupting underwater, essentially, with fluids coming out. And they can be rich in gold and other minerals. The problem with those is that I mean to me that is like mining the Grand Canyon or Jasper or Bryce or one of these national parks. They're they're like a postage stamp, you know, they're they're like these international heritage sites where we first discovered chemosynthetic life in the deep sea. And it's just chilling to think that those might just be scraped off as a mine when it's like, you know, they have name they're individually named um, with these kind of whimsical names. And so, you know, unique and just they should be cherished and not just extracted for a handful of, of minerals, I think.
0: I think you said in an op-ed that you wrote on this subject that these metal nodules could be as old as 14 million years old. Why does it take so long to form one of these things? I mean, how, what is the formation process?
3: they're precipitating the dissolved chemicals out of the ocean itself onto a little nucleation site. So in other words, um, I don't know if people have played with those salt crystals, grow your own salt crystals at home where you have a little string hanging down and then just slowly, 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 literally, you know, molecule by molecule, those layers built up. So it's not like lava erupting or something where it extrudes out a whole bunch of this material at once. It's it's really coming out of the chemicals that are dissolved in the seawater itself it's just a very slow accretion process for the the crusts the cobalt crusts that are target of mining and for these manganese nodules that are on the seafloor
0: well these machines the companies behind them are after something and what they're after are these metal nodules you know the to- total amount of financial reward for that material is quite high i mean we're not talking about hey let's go down there and find a uh, you know ten or a hundred thousand dollars worth of artifacts from the Titanic I mean this is over an enormous area of ocean and the uh, financial rewards can be considerable
3: that's true I mean it's it's billions and billions of dollars um, and especially in proportion to the economies of some of the countries who could potentially stand to benefit um, that's one of the interesting dynamics when you try to talk about this issue is you know we as a Western society with our electric vehicles and stuff, are we going to be telling these smaller nations what to do with their resources? And I mean, in, in a way, it's the heritage of mankind, but in another way, it's, it's that country's backyard. So it's really untold riches for them.
0: But playing the devil's advocate, I mean, you know, nobody would say, oh, let's destroy the seafloor and, you know, let's obliterate all those species that nobody knows much about. But on the other hand, we do need these metals for modern existence. So isn't there a certain inevitability about mining the seafloor?
3: I hope it's not inevitable. I mean, when we were writing our op-ed, we we went back and forth over when we, if we should say, if mining begins or when mining begins, um, we were trying to decide like what was the more accurate and hopeful phrase there. I mean, there, there's certainly a demand. We just want people to enter into it with their eyes open and that includes not just the environmental impacts but our connectedness to the ocean again it seems remote but it really is connected to the atmosphere to food resources and for island economies with tourism and other other ways that they benefit from the presence of a clean healthy ocean.
0: Steve Haddock thanks so very much for speaking with
3: us. Thanks, Seth. It was a pleasure.
2: Stephen Haddock is a senior scientist at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, and you can find a link to him and his New York Times op-ed about the dangers of deep sea mining on our website, bigpicturescience.org. Well, there's no better way to get into our next subject but to plunge in.
0: When marine chemist Emily Hall dove into a blue sinkhole in the Gulf of Mexico this summer, she likened it to going into space. Kind of shaped like an hourglass, the sinkhole off the west coast of Florida, home to the Moat Marine Laboratory where Dr. Hall works, is one of dozens of marine caverns that scientists estimate formed about 10,000 years ago. But this one had never been explored for science.
2: Okay, my claustrophobia is setting in because even though the sinkhole begins at 45 meters and it continues down to 129 meters, putting it just above the demarcation of the deep sea, some of these sinkholes have narrow, as in squeeze your body and your equipment in, narrow openings and are, well, caverns.
0: Yeah, well, that that gives me claustrophobia too, Molly. I've been in caverns like that, and I didn't think I'd ever get out. But the lure here is big because this isn't just any blue sinkhole. This one is called the Green Banana. Dr. Hall is the principal investigator of the Green Banana Expedition, an exploration of one of the deepest sinkholes in the world. So Emily, let's begin with how this sinkhole got its name, Green Banana.
4: I don't know exactly where it got its name from, but stories on the street are that some fishermen who found the spot basically just saw some bananas floating by and decided to call it green banana. <laughs> it's not no, it's, it's, that exciting.
0: <laughs> not, not because it has a peel or anything like that. Oh. Okay. If, if I could go underwater, you know, 100 feet or whatever it is where the sinkhole is, what would I see? Would I see an actual hole in the, in the surface of the ocean there?
4: You really would. If you were diving off your boat into the water, you just kind of have to know where it is um, or have lines there already. And you start swimming down and you don't see anything. You don't see anything. And then all of a sudden, this dark hole starts to appear, this dark circle. And you're just like, what is that? Until you get down to it. And green banana is doesn't open up till about 150 feet. So think about diving down 150 feet until you can actually reach this hole. Well,
0: order of magnitude, how deep is it below the uh, the Ocean bottom there.
4: I believe the deepest that any of our divers got on this dive was about 420 feet deep below the surface of the water.
0: So, so from the top of the ocean to the bottom of this uh, green banana is about I don't know. That's about the height of the Washington Monument. I mean, that's a long way.
4: It's a very long way.
0: <laughs> okay, well, describe your own experience. I mean, what was it like when you went down in there?
4: Well, the opening of this hole is about 100 feet across, actually. So the opening, you know, you could swim the length of it. You can see from one side to the other. So it's easy to get to as as far as just, you know, size of it, but it's not easy to get to because to dive down to 150 feet, you have to have courage, you have to have the right certification, you have to have, you have to be able to be calm. And on top of that, like just the excitement of it, we're carrying a bunch of scientific equipment with us too. So we have to be able to handle all of that. And I'm not going to lie, as soon as I saw this hole for the first time underwater, I squealed with joy through my regulator. You could hear me underwater going, (laughs) because it was so cool but you definitely have to have nerve.
0: I'm told that the people that do dive all the way down are very specialized not only in terms of training but also in the kind of equipment they carry. I take it that's all because of the threat they'll get the bends
4: bends is one concern. There, there's well, running out of air is another concern. Um, and then the different types of air that you breathe, we, we change our mixes as the deeper you go. And so they also have to carry a lot of different extra bottles with them. Um, most of our guys that went down to the bottom were on rebreathers, which actually recirculates the air that you're breathing. Really high tech, awesome, very expensive gear <laughs> to dive on. But you do have to, be, you have to go through a lot of training to be able to get to that level think of like an astronaut in space and the equipment that they wear it's very similar well, to that well well
0: you've you've likened this to going into space i mean yes in terms of the equipment i can imagine that but is there any other resemblance, if you will?
4: Oh, absolutely. I think, I mean, I'm not an astronaut, and I haven't done any kind of space training, so I don't I don't know for sure, but I envision that when you go, we're, we're floaty, just like you are in space, you kind of bounce around. Uh, you don't, the, because of our equipment, we're able to create neutral buoyancy underwater, so you can just kind of bounce or just kind of float through the water also what you're hearing is just the sounds of what's going on underwater you're no longer hearing what we hear on on land or you know on on the surface of the boat or anything so it's just a whole different world a whole different environment under there
0: what causes these sinkholes i mean why is it that you get this giant abscess in the ocean bottom there
4: Yeah, that's a great question, and we believe that these holes that we've been studying were probably formed about 8,000, anywhere from 8,000 to 10,000 years ago, back when Florida was much wider, sea levels were lower, so the Florida shelf was out of the water. And so just like we have sinkholes and springs on land in Florida, because of our limestone geology, our karst topography, they formed back then and and they just managed to not fill up and stay underwater as, as a sinkhole or a spring.
0: So this is a sinkhole like you might find in, I don't know, your backyard, although most people don't, but you know, it could be. And then it got flooded with water, so it becomes an ocean sinkhole. So, what prompted you to do the dive other than the excitement of it all, and it does sound pretty exciting, what were the scientific questions you were trying to answer?
4: So we have quite a large team working on this, asking a lot of different questions. The ones that I was most interested in include what's the chemistry profile going on in these holes. One of the things that I do a lot of work, a lot of research on, is climate change and ocean acidification. And we know that in these holes, they're very unique environments, both with nutrients and pH and temperature and light and anything, any type of water quality parameter you can think of. And so we know they're different from the above above it in the rest of the Gulf of Mexico. And so I, I'm, I really wanna understand why it's different and why it's maintaining such a diverse ecosystem right on these holes.
0: Yeah, well, that seems like an obvious question. I mean, I, I don't understand. I'm obviously not a marine biologist or chemist or anything like that, but why should the water in this hole in the bottom be any difference in the water above it.
4: Right, that's a big question for us. And there are so many holes out there. There's more than 20 that we've actually verified and we've gotten reports of so many more. You know, what does that mean? Why, you know, are, and is the water chemistry and the water biology, is the biology different in all of these holes? Are they the same? We have, we have so many more questions now that we've been doing this.
0: And have you found anything of interest so far?
4: Yeah, well, um, green banana is the second hole that we've studied on this project. The first one was called amberjack hole, and we have already seen major differences between the two holes. We think one was an old sinkhole and one was an old spring. They're shaped differently. They're, one's deeper than the other. The chemistry is different in both of them, and so we're still working out the data, trying to understand what it all means, but um, biologically they're different too. We fe- We found different things at both of the holes, some similar things, but we're still Still, still investigating that.
0: Do you also sample the bacteria there?
4: Yes, we do. One of um, our colleagues from the Georgia Institute of Technology are specifically looking at the microbial community, um, and so they've already found some really cool things. In fact, they are—they've submitted a paper, hopefully, the, uh, a scientific journal article already. Like they are definitely finding some really cool things.
0: So you say that there have been some studies of the microbial life in this whole, Can you get perhaps some interesting? antibiotics out of those guys or
4: maybe is- that's not actually my field but I am working with colleagues who are looking for that type of information in the ocean. I'm looking to see if they can find antimicrobial properties on organisms that live in the in the ocean or just even in the water within the ocean. So so I know there are people looking at it. It's just not me.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, finally then, Emily, you're going back to the green banana. I mean, I take it that this is going to be perhaps a career-long interests, or, or maybe a lifelong interest.
4: Yeah, I really hope so. We are definitely going back. We're going back in May. Fingers crossed. Nothing keeps us out of the water. But yeah, a lot of our work is based on projects, what we have funding for, different projects, and, and hopefully we can build off of this project that we that we'll be completing next year.
0: Emily Hall, thanks so
4: very much for speaking with us. Yeah, it's been so much fun. Thank you.
2: Emily Hall is a marine chemist at the Moat Marine Laboratory in Florida. Could eavesdropping on deep sea creature conversations help guide efforts for conservation?
5: The mining noises are expected to be louder than even a rock concert. So what we expect is if that kind of thing happens, then our recordings will be dominated actually by anthropogenic sounds and not the natural sound itself.
0: It's Into the Deep on Big Picture Science. Okay, well, now a story about studying the deep sea that's both unusual and novel. What if we could harness information-rich sound waves to monitor and help conserve the deep ocean? Acoustic monitoring, it's a growing field of ocean science. In fact, you may recall we did a report about scientists who played audio underwater of healthy populated coral reefs to lure fish back to reefs that were dying.
2: Scientists have long listened to the sounds of the sea, whether it's the haunting call of whales or the engines of cargo ships, but only recently have deep-sea biologists such as Chong Chen of the Japan Agency for Marine Earth Science and Technology, or JAMSTEC, tuned into the deepest parts of it, By establishing baseline soundscapes of healthy habitats, he thinks scientists can monitor how habitats change. So Dr. Chen lowers hydrophones into the deep ocean to eavesdrop, although we begin with his description of an animal in shallower waters whose vocalizations surprised him.
5: So we don't think of soft body animals like worms to make significant sounds. But recently, it was discovered by a research group in Japan that actually uh, soft-bodied polychaete worms make click noises um, very loud click noises that resemble sort of click noise you would expect from dolphins or other larger mammals and those sounds are loud and you can hear them from quite far away and that is the sort of sound they make during what is known as mouth-fighting when they confront each other.
2: Mouth-fighting? Mouth? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And these, just to be clear, these are worms that are on the bottom of the sea?
5: Yes, they live in, in relatively shallow water, about 100 meters deep. And nobody knew they made any sound before this discovery.
2: Okay, so the sound is coming from their mouth. Yes. Okay, but I would assume that the animals down at the bottom of the sea make all kinds of sounds in all different kinds of ways. What other sounds do animals make and how do they make them?
5: So with whales, for example, and dolphins, they have uh, special organs behind what you call the melon of their head and they have this organ that use pressurized air and they make click noises and whistles that are unique to each species and uh, individuals. And then there are fishes which have specialized soniferous muscles, and they use those muscles to uh, make sound pretty much as humans talk. And then there are other animals who um, we don't expect to make noises, like the worms who make sounds using variety of
2: ways. And just so we have a visual image of this, how big are these worms? Are we talking about earthworms or are we talking about gigantic... Tube worms? (laughs) What kind of worms are they?
5: Uh, So these are not very large worms. These are worms about three centimeters long, maximum, that live in sponges that are on the bottom of the sea.
2: Oh, goodness. So they're little. Okay, so the sounds of worms and fish and the other sounds that you've collected, you've done so using a hydrophone, I believe. Can you explain to us how a hydrophone works?
5: So hydrophone is basically just like a microphone but it's made watertight and made sure it works on the water and it collects sound.
2: Now, do you have to adjust the frequency so that we can hear the sounds of the deep sea? Or are you collecting the sounds as they're being created?
5: So we are collecting the sounds as they're created.
2: And and how deep are you taking your hydrophone? I mean, if, if you're really going to the bottom of the sea, you might be going as many as 11,000 meters.
5: So our hydrophone is currently um, pressure tight up to 6,000 meters. So the deepest we've taken it is 5,500 meters.
2: Okay, so that's still, that's still very far down there. What is your interest in collecting a soundscape of the deep sea? And, and how could these audio files be used in conservation?
5: My primary interest in collecting these sounds is to understand what a natural, healthy habitat for these animals at the deep sea sounds like. And recently, it has become quite clear through studies in shallow water coral reefs, for example, that animals often rely on soundstapes. But in the deep sea, we know very little about what these environments sound like. So we have no baseline for understanding uh, what impacts deep sea mining might impact these soundstapes.
2: And of course, sound travels so well in water.
5: Yes, exactly. So this is one reason why sound might be very important is that it's one of the cues that could travel very far, whereas other cues could be diluted in seawater, for example, chemical cues, because seawater around the hydrothermal vent, for example, is so vast.
2: Well, we have an example of uh, the sound of a hydrothermal vent. Uh, this is from the Jamstack Collection there in Japan. I'll play it twice, but I wonder if you could just tell us what we should listen for.
5: So when you listen to a hydrothermal vent noise, listen for the rumbling sound that you might associate with like a thunderstorm.
2: Okay, so that w- and that would be the sound of the vent itself and all that hot uh, mineral-rich water coming up and, and hitting the uh, cold seawater?
5: Yes, that's right.
2: And should we listen for any animals?
5: I think if even if there was any animals, it might be quite difficult to make out in this case. So just listen for the vent.
2: Okay, so if anyone's listening for arguing worms, it's probably futile. So don't do that. Okay, so let's listen to a hydrothermal vent. So listening to that, I didn't hear deep rumbling. Sort of more like the sound of a waterfall. It seemed quite gentle. Mm -hmm.
5: So waterfalls actually make more high pitched sound. But this is much more low-pitched and sort of a quiet rumble, if you like.
2: And every now and then you hear what sounds like a microphone. <laughs> it's a familiar sound to me. It's the sound of a microphone being bumped. So I'm guessing that your hydrophone occasionally is, is bumping something close to the vent.
5: We put this hydrophone just right next to the orifice of a hydrophone vent. The hydrothermal vent generates a very large flow. So that kind of sways the hydrophone we place on the seafloor, which is actually standing on a stand. So that's where the sound is coming from.
2: So, Chung, when you get this, these sounds back, now this is an example of a hydrothermal vent, but whether it's a hydrothermal vent or it's a soundscape filled with the sound of animals, what do you listen for?
5: So we will try to understand what the geological sounds like, hydrothermal vent, water coming out from the vent orifices sound like, and also if there are any evidence of animals that are making sound locally. But also, quite importantly, we also want to know what sound is coming from far and reaching these hydrothermal vents. For example, we are always less interested in listening to what noise that the ship on the surface generates And whether it reaches the deep sea that we can hear. And so that's shipping noises and other noises, such as maybe those made by whales and dolphins that are far away. And we may sometimes also pick those up.
2: How do you tease out all the different sounds, though? Because if you really have a densely layered soundscape of whales and dolphins and worms and fish and hydrothermal vents... How are you able to identify what sound belongs to what?
5: Uh, So thankfully, we have an understanding of what different sounds sounds like, especially those such as the shipping noise and dolphin whistles. We know what those sound like, so those can be picked out quite easily. And as for the vents, we actually have to have background recording. So we have another hydrofoam that is in a site nearby, but not in the vents. So we can record what the ambient noise is at normal deep sea floor that's in this area. And then we compare that to the recording from the vents.
2: Are, are you picking out the different sounds with your ears? Or are you using a, a computer to analyze the sound waves?
5: Both, actually. So, of course, our ears are very useful, but sometimes you need the computer programs to pick out the different components of a soundscape.
2: So tell us again how this could be used in conservation or understanding ecosystems. What sort of change might you detect in these audio recordings, and what would that tell you about what's happening on the deep sea floor?
5: So already we can hear, even from our our recordings, the shipping noise from the surface coming from ships. And that is a sound that the animals don't expect. So if this kind of sound can reach the deep, then surely if a mining expedition happens, then that noise, as we know, because we know the hydrothermal vent sounds are only about as loud as our daily conversations, but the mining noises are expected to be louder than even a rock concert. So that will mask the sound we can get from hydrothermal vents. So what we expect is if that kind of thing happens, then our recordings will be dominated actually by anthropogenic sounds and not the natural sound itself. And that has profound impacts on animals that rely on these sounds to find their homes.
2: Chang, are you a diver? Do you do deep sea diving yourself?
5: Yes, I have dived multiple times in a research submersible and seen hydrogen vents uh, through the windows of submersibles. So the human eye is an amazing thing and the vividness is just very different and you can see these animals in much higher resolution than the cameras will allow and that was a very astonishing experience seeing all these animals on the chimneys Uh, whittling and moving around and responding to the hydrothermal vent in real time.
2: One of the residents of a hydrothermal vent is an animal that is close to your heart, I believe. It's the scaly-foot snail. And you are very concerned about this little animal. Why is that?
5: Yes, very much so. The scaly-foot snail is a very unique snail that lives in only in deep sea hydrothermal vents, and it has iron-infused scales on its surface of its body, and it's the only animal we know to do so. And this animal actually has endosymbiotic bacteria living inside its body, supplying its food, and it cannot live anywhere else other than in the flow of hydrothermal vents. And recently, we assessed this species and listed in the IUCN red list as endangered, and it's endangered because the places they live are mostly under the mining threats in international waters and these places may be subject to mining activities anytime so what is directly targeted is these vent sulfide structures that form the chimneys of hydrothermal vents which are themselves high quality mineral ores so the scalyfoot snail for example lives on these chimneys so if mining activity happens and these chimneys are taken then they have nowhere to live And now we actually have about 30 species assessed for the IUCN Red List. And of those species, other than the ones that are in marine protected areas, they're all threatened.
2: So the IUCN Red List is the International Union for Conservation of Nature Red List. That's a list of endangered species. Um, Chong, tell us what we lose if we lose a creature like the scaly-foot snail. It's one creature. It's a small one. Um, It seems to have a very small habitat, confined habitat. What do we lose if a creature like this goes extinct?
5: So the problem is not just with the scalyfoot snail. With hydrothermal vents that was only discovered in 1970s, we still have very little idea about what is the true biodiversity there. And these animals have some of the most amazing adaptations we know from the natural world. So what we lose here, we don't even know. And we should be well informed before we make such decisions to mine the area.
2: Maybe we don't even appreciate that these are entire worlds that have complexity and interdependence the way that our own worlds do. But because they're out of sight, they're at the bottom of the ocean, you know, we don't we don't think about them in the same way as we do life that's on the surface.
5: Yes, exactly, that's right. So one of the major problems with these deep sea habitat is they're out of sight and sort of out of mind as well from the general public. But since the deep sea of international waters is actually a heritage of mankind overall, we are all stakeholders in this. And it is important that we are aware that these animals and environments exist.
2: Chang Cheng, thank you so much for speaking with us. And good luck with your work. Thank you very much.
0: Chang Cheng is a deep sea biologist with the Japan Agency for Marine Earth Science and Technology.
2: Well, we could not do this show without the deep talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producer Sarah Derwin, and intern Frieda Cryer. Thanks to you all. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
0: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Scholsky david and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation and NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, the habitats of other planets. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also a big thanks to our listeners and those who have joined Big Picture Science on Patreon.
2: This episode of Big Picture Science is called Into the Deep. And if you'd like to hear it again or listen to past episodes, well, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And you'll also find a list there to the guests you've heard.